0: This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Let's pretend I'm your next-door neighbor. Your doorbell rings, and you see me standing there with an empty measuring cup. But instead of asking for the typical cup of sugar or maybe a cup of flour, I ask if you could spare a cup of soil. We have to keep in mind now you're living next door to Dr. Biology. Now you're thinking to yourself, a cup of soil? And you say, you mean a cup of dirt. No? actually, I'm looking for a cup of soil. Now you're confused. You're thinking, what's the difference? And you ask, what is the difference between a cup of soil and a cup of dirt? And so begins our adventure into what may seem to be a dirty subject. But in fact, that cup of soil I want to borrow is filled with tiny living organisms that have their own tiny food web that has a really big impact on all living things. To help us explore the world of soil and the microorganisms that make it their home is our guest scientist Ferran Garcia Pichel, a professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. He's a microbiologist that's been doing some very cool research with some special microbes called cyanobacteria. If you look at the name, you'll see that it begins with cyan, C-Y-A-N, which is the name of a particular color of blue. And it turns out to be a hint about the organism. He's also been looking into some other microorganisms called extremophiles. And maybe we'll see what these extreme organisms have to do with life on Earth and what they have to do with maybe life on other planets. Welcome to the show, Professor Garcia Pichel.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Okay, Ferran. Is it okay if I call you Ferran? Oh, please. I've brought in a cup of soil... You can hear it. Now, tell me, what's the difference between a cup of soil and a cup of dirt?
1: Well, it's really just a matter of language. But in a way, if we look at the etymology of these words, then really it's not a cup of filth. It is a cup of a complex mixture of living and non-living materials, minerals, microorganisms, Uh, degrading organic matter, that composes this thing we call soil. And so that's why I'm so adamant about not calling it dirt.
0: Right. It's these microorganisms that make it so important. Actually, it was interesting. I was looking at a little information on the web, and they were estimating that in a gram of soil, I'll use the word that you like to use, that there can be as many as a billion microorganisms. If you do the math, it's pretty interesting because in an 8-ounce cup of soil, you end up with over several hundred billion microorganisms in that single cup, which is pretty cool. Now, you do a lot of work with soils, and in fact, there are a lot of different kinds of soils. For example, what would be the difference between a cup of soil in the desert southwest and, say, a cup we get from the coast, or maybe even my own backyard.
1: Yes, like everything in this life, I guess, soils coming, all all different uh, sorts and colors, and mostly they vary in their biological potential and their percentage composition between living and non-living components. So if you go to certain soils in the Arctic tundra, they're mostly composed of organic material, whereas if you go to very, very poor soils in very arid regions, they would be uh, composed mostly of inorganic minerals. And then there is all sorts of things in between. So if you go to most typical soils that we care about, our agricultural soils, of course, very important for everybody, these are sort of halfway in between. You have then soils with richer biological component and forest soils, for example, and then soils that are typically poorer in the biological component in arid areas. Like the desert. Like us in the Southwest, we have relatively poor soils that are very arid. They have low components and they're relatively slow in turning over in their activity because they're limited by the lack of water. So if you irrigate them, they can turn into Uh, richer soil. So if you go higher in elevation, say, for example, if you go higher into the mountains of Arizona, you start getting richer soils, more typical of, uh, say, Midwestern latitude forests.
0: Right. Right. So if I want to grow a garden, it's better to have something that's more of soil that has this organic material, the microbes that are in there, than, say, in the desert, where I have, as we said earlier, maybe just dirt.
1: It has no microbes. It's
0: basically inorganic material.
1: Well, only that minerals are not necessarily filthy either. So True. it may not still be dirt. <laughs> uh, it may be an inorganic soil, but in any event, that's right. So essentially, a soil is—it's a complex system that's not in what we call a steady state. it's, it's evolving, just like many other systems, from in you know, a long term. From the original mineral soil that comes from weathered rock and slowly matures into soils that become rich in organic matter that promote the growth of plants that are important perhaps for agriculture, our gardening, and so on.
0: Hmm. Now back to these microbes that we know in this cup of soil. Mm -hmm. How do they fit into the food web? What's their role basically?
1: Well, we can think about it in two different levels. One, you could think about what the part of the biota that we cannot really see with our naked eyes do in the soil itself. And essentially what they do is in most soils that have an important input of organic matter from plant litter, their main role essentially is to transform that organic matter to decompose it into its original components CO2 and water, essentially, in regards to the carbon part of it. And in so doing, they couple this activity with other transformations. That activity cannot be done by itself. Essentially, they are burning that organic matter. They have to burn it with something. Typically, it would be oxygen in what we call the atmosphere of the soil. But when they run out of oxygen, they can use alternative fuels. And those are actually what... This transformation gears what we call the biogeochemical cycles that happen in the soil. So sometimes uh, these activities of transforming organic matter are ingrained into the cycles of other elements like nitrogen or iron. Uh, And so cycles that are ingrained to other cycles then drive many of the elemental cycles of the different elements in nature in those soils.
0: So one of the things we could say is that they not only break down the organic material, but they, in doing so they release the water, they release the CO2, right? Right. Uh, the, they, they also release this, the nitrogen that was basically well tied con- up,
1: right? They would consume particular compounds in other cycles. For example, to burn these organic matter, they either use oxygen if it's present, but when they run out of it, they may start using nitrate. So then they would respire just like, or or breathe just like we do, but they would breathe something else. In so doing, they, for example, one of the uh, consequences of this process is that this nitrate that is present in the soil is now transformed into nitrogen gas that gets lost to the atmosphere. And so in a way, it impoverishes this process called denitrification. It impoverishes the soil. So in terms of its nitrogen uh, capacity. Then other microbes then may be needed that are able to return this nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil, and only microbes can do this process. And so that's why microbes are so important also in returning some of these nutrients to the soil. And this is a particular problem for us in the Southwest and other areas of the world where nitrogen is a very important limiting nutrient for the fertility of soils in agriculture and agricultural activities, and so some of the microbes are these nitrogen fixers that we also happen to study in our laboratory. Okay. So it's all ingrained. Nothing happens by itself. It's all a big complex clockwork.
0: Yes, yes, a, a clockwork, right? Like um, in this case, a cycle. Uh, Here we've got microbes that are responsible for uh, decomposing organic material, which is breaking down, say, dead plants, and they release the nitrogen into the atmosphere. And then we have other microbes that are able to help bring the nitrogen back into the soil so new plants can grow. Um, It truly is uh, a full cycle and part of the food web. Uh, and while we're talking about the food web, let's talk a little bit about the soil food web. Uh, there are all these different organisms and cast of characters, so to speak. There's some things you can see, and so therefore we think they're, they make up most of this food web. And so there are nematodes and arthropods, and there will be the fungi, and there's the plants. You go through all that, and then there's one little section that says bacteria. So it looks like there's a whole lot of these other things and just a little bit of the bacteria. Is that what's really going on in the soil?
1: Well, that's sort of a human tendency we have. We are very visual organisms ourselves, and we tend to believe very much or think that what we can see is important, and and truly is. Obviously, the importance of plants for soils cannot be discounted, and yet those morphologically seemingly boring organisms that are beyond the reach of our eyes, have not only the lion's share of the biomass, of the total mass of organic compounds that are in the soil, but also they carry out most of all the diversity in chemical reactions and transformations that constitute the clockwork of the soil and what drives the maturation, formation of the soil, and so on. So... Essentially, as we microbiologists tend to think, we could think of an earth without plants or animals, but we could not think of an earth without microbes.
0: That's kind of what I was going to ask you. If I, if we had to substitute or remove some of those things from the food web, uh, if we removed the bacteria, we'd be in really deep trouble, right?
1: If we removed the bacteria, we would have possibly not very efficient way of extracting nutrients from the mineral components, so plants could not really get a good handle. There would be no way of carrying certain necessary transformations like nitrogen fixation. And again, any productivity, any plant leader would not be essentially degraded. So all of those elements would be tied up in all dead biomass and there would be no new growth. So the renewal is certainly founded on the presence of bacteria so that the ecosystem is sustainable.
0: So without bacteria, could we have life on Earth?
1: Without bacteria? Well, that's almost a philosophical question. I guess one can go in that direction. But certainly not life in any way that it would be similar to what we know today as life. Um, But certainly we've had, for most of the duration of Earth's history, we've had complete ecosystem and biogeochemical cycles and a life-supporting planet without macroorganism. And that's for the lion's share of Earth's history. The ecosystems with microorganisms are actually relatively new in the history of Earth. So the other is correct.
0: Right. The macroorganisms, those are like, well, you and I and all the plants and animals and things that we can see with just our eyes versus the microorganisms that we typically need a microscope to see. Those are the things that have been around a long time, and you and I are relatively recent living things in the ecosystem. Well, that's interesting. Now... You spend a lot of time researching a particular bacteria called cyanobacteria. What got you interested in this organism?
1: Well, so it's not a bacteria; it's a it's a group of bacteria. So it's not just a single bacterium; it's a it's a class of bacteria. All right, and so these organisms are interesting because, first of all, they are essentially the inventors of photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, as we know, as plants do today. Uh, essentially was invented by these organisms that they are the only microorganisms that are capable of that type of metabolism uh, that transformation in addition to this many of these cyanobacteria which are very common even today in the open oceans they represent a large proportion of all the carbon that is fixed in the world is fixed by cyanobacteria in the ocean another characteristic of the cyanobacteria is that they seem to be dominant in extreme environments. And I always had a tendency to study these extreme environments because things seem to be simplified when things get extreme. And so I felt like we had a chance to better understand systems in that they're still functional at the extremes, but they lose part of the complexity. And so we had a better chance to start understanding bacteria and natural systems as they work if we look at the extremes. By extreme, we mean environments that are so extreme in their environmental parameters that they limit the amount of organisms that can live under those particular circumstances.
0: Right. It could be things, extremes in temperatures or extremes in pressure. Uh, We'll get to talk a little bit more about that. Well, another thing that we have learned from some of your research, at least I've learned from reading about your research, is uh, sunscreens. And uh, the curious thing about that, of course, we talk about that all the time, especially if you live in the southwest desert. We want to protect ourselves against damage from the sun. And it turns out that maybe there's a story that these little bacteria could uh, tell us all about and we can make use of.
1: Yes, this is a a very long interest of mine. Uh, And essentially, it all stems from the same interest in understanding these extreme environments and this group of organisms that are common in this. So it also comes from the study of cyanobacteria and really from very old research that I did during my PhD work. While I was visiting some desert sites and some marine sites in Baja California in Mexico in the late 80s, I noticed that many of these cyanobacteria that grew in these high, very dry environments exposed to a lot of ultraviolet radiation from the sun without an ability to be able to repair any damage because of the lack of water, they displayed very strange colorations. And so we started studying this, and we actually found out that microbes produce a new class of sunscreen to protect themselves from the extreme nature of the environment in deserts, just like where we live. So that opened up a whole new area of research for us into microbial sunscreens, and we have been studying the sunscreens from cyanobacteria at the physiological and then at the biochemical and now we're trying to crack the molecular and genetic basis for the biosynthesis of sunscreens in cyanobacteria as well
0: so is there going to be an advantage for humans down the road because we always want to get back to us for some reason or another we always well
1: getting- yes so so We're basically, and if I may use the redundancy here, basic scientists. So we're not necessarily aiming at finding an application immediately. That doesn't mean we don't care, but we're not realize the importance of going after questions that may not necessarily have an application. But that doesn't mean that we're not aware of the potential and we try to pursue it if we happen to find it. In this case... It has been the case, these molecules that were discovered as sunscreens for cyanobacteria have been then later found to be unique molecules in terms of their composition and their effects on human health. So some of these molecules have been shown to have an anti-cancer activity, anti-inflammatory activity, in addition to their ability to act as sunscreens. So yes, we have patented these things together with our colleagues in the Biomedical community. And yes, there is a potential application for this research in medicine, essentially, in, um, in human health. Not that we would be pursuing as basic scientists this to the end, but we'd open up these avenues so that applied scientists can make use of them. And that's really uh, the value of basic science in the long run.
0: Yes, that's a really important point. Uh, and I don't think we've really talked about that on our show. There are two areas in science. There's a basic research area and there's applied research. And it turns out that the basic research is looking for the fundamental things that are going on in the world and how they work. Applied research often uses the information that's gathered from basic research to move it on into things that could be, say, a product or a medicine. And they're very important, both basic and applied. So I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's something we really haven't talked about here, and I, I do think it's important.
1: Yes, and and I think it's important also to point to the bridging between the two so that actually it is incumbent upon the basic science when they see something that may be obviously or clearly interesting to bring the research up to a level where it can be picked up by the more applied side of things.
0: Right, right. And, you know, quite frankly, the basic research, I think that's, to me, the very fun part because it seems like that's when your curiosity gets to run amok. You get to think, wow, that's cool, and why is it doing that, and how is it doing that? And that's pretty much what you've been doing with the bacteria, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I consider myself very lucky for this, because this part of science that where you actually just follow your inklings uh, and try to answer questions for the sake of knowledge, that's really, a, I consider myself very lucky to be able to do this. Even though, of course it may not earn as easily the recognition of the general public as uh, discovering, uh, say, um, immediately applicable new medicine.
0: Right. Well, actually, you know, Ferran, this is a really good topic. We have an emeritus faculty member, Winifred Doan, who discovered the adipose gene. For those that haven't heard of the word adipose, it means fat. So it's the fat gene. She discovered this gene in Drosophila, which are fruit flies, 50 years ago, and it kind of laid dormant. It was basic research. And recently, it's been picked up because a new group is working with it, and they're working with mammals, uh, basically some rats. And it's got this rebirth, but it came about from her early research, and it didn't necessarily take off right away, but 50 years later... Now it's become really important.
1: Yes, and, and I think it is also incumbent upon us, the scientific community, to make the public aware of the importance of bas- basic research, essentially to build up this knowledge repository where then people with a applied inkling can go and draw from, and the larger the, the repository, the bigger the chances that those applied efforts will succeed. Right, and giant so it's a matter library. of increasing the chances of success. Right. That's really, I think, what basic research, that's for applied research.
0: Yeah, this giant library of knowledge that you don't necessarily use it right away, but if it's there, later on you can pull it off the shelf mm, and start exactly. working with it. I think it's perfect. You know, we talked about soil now, and I have my cup of soil, and so now we're into kind of a cooking mode And maybe I need a little bit of salt, and salt's a spice, and like most spices, a little bit of salt's good, get too much salt, and well, it can just really ruin food. What also turns out, a little bit of salt in environments is also good for us, but you get way too salty of an environment, most things can't live there. You've actually been doing some work with some of these organisms that live in an incredibly salty environment. And you started talking about some of the extremes, and I like to use the word that's been coined a while back, extremophiles. Can you talk a little bit about these organisms that live in this really salty world? Mm.
1: Yes. As you have introduced, not very many bugs can live in under very extremely salty conditions. And so that offered us a model to study ecological principles with ecosystems that had a very limited amount of members. And so that was the reason why we started doing this. But essentially, the biology of extremophiles, in this case, microbes that like to live in uh, extreme conditions of salt are called halophiles from halide, which is essentially the name from a uh, Greek name for salt. So in this case, we studied communities of evaporating ponds mostly in salt-producing companies. And in those salt evaporation ponds, as you can see them, actually when you fly into uh, San Francisco and the bay, you see some wonderful examples of red, pink, and green colored ponds. Those are all colored by these halophilic microorganisms uh, that live at you know, concentrations of salt where very few organisms can live. And, and actually you have a very good example in using salt actually to preserve food. The point is, and the analogy is even larger than this, in food science, we preserve food by going to the extremes. Either we cool things down or we salt things up or we dry things up or we heat things up. Uh, Essentially, by going to the extreme, we limit the amount of organisms that can then spoil the food. So that's the idea. And yes, we have uh, studied organisms that can live in essentially... Saturation conditions for sodium chloride, essentially table salt dissolved in water until water will not take up anymore and they can still live there. And it's very interesting to study also the mechanisms that they have and how different they are to cope with the circumstances.
0: Well, and that has to do with life on Earth. Turns out that extremophiles is kind of an interesting study because we can actually move out of our solar system. We can actually be explorers now. and. So sometimes people will call you maybe an
1: astrobiologist? Mm, Yes. So the study of extremophilic microbiology has been very important for the development of the science of astrobiology. Essentially, in astrobiology, people try to figure out if they can detect or at least predict the presence of living organisms or life outside of our only known example, our planet. And in this regard, of course, conditions in other planets are, in general, not very close to the ones we have on Earth, at least today. And so, therefore, studying Earth systems that are a little bit um, different than the norm, these extreme environments, the hope is here that we can then perhaps predict or understand A, the limits of life, and B, how life differs in terms of possibilities or also their imprints in those environments so we can then detect or predict the presence of living organisms in planets that are outside of our own. So essentially it widens our horizons as how we understand the possibilities and the effects of life. So essentially in that regard, yes, I have been involved in um, in projects in astrobiology before together with other uh, faculty at ASU. Um, and the uh, science of extremophilic microbiology has been very important in, in the development of astrobiology.
0: I like to ask three questions from my scientists. Three more questions. <laughs> right. Three more questions. When did you first know you wanted to be a biologist or a scientist?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you down a little bit here. But I was not a precocious microbiologist, that's for sure, not even a biologist. I think I knew from very early on that I wanted to go into some academic pursuit. I always liked the environment and and being able to do um, academic work, but I was doubting until very late, I, I guess relatively late compared to others anyway, between going into biology or physics or philosophy, which were my three choices at the time. And so... I guess it was a little bit, you know, by the turns of life that eventually, you know, I ended up in a microbiology lab, and I enjoyed it very much, and and things sort of snowballed from there. Fell into place. Yep. Well, now that you've figured out what you want to be... Well, not that I have a lot of choice anymore.
0: Well, we hope you still have a choice, because I'm going to take away all your biology and science. Uh, You're not going to be able to be a scientist. What I want to know is, what would you be... If I took all those away, you can't be a scientist and you can't be a biologist.
1: Hmm. How about a performer? Performer? Yes. Some singer or um, uh, actor. Singer or actor. Great. Something like that, I guess. Uh, Artist of some sort. I don't know. I I really haven't given it much thought. about. But I guess I I can see myself leading a bohemian life.
0: That creative side. uh, It's actually... Yeah, I guess so. Something that we… Something
1: creative. I guess you you hit the the, uh, crucial point there.
0: Well, and we've mentioned it many times on this show that science is a process of being creative. Mm -hmm. People often uh, think of science as not being creative, but I often say, well, we design experiments and the word design is used for a reason. You seeing things that are occurring in nature and wondering how they do it and why they do it and creating the experiments to to find the answer, it takes creativity. So having you say that you would like to be an artist or a performer or an actor makes perfect sense to me. All right, so you're going to be actually a really good candidate for this last question. What advice do you have for someone who would like to be a biologist? You mean some useful advice that's not too cheesy? Useful
1: is good, but um, let's say words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. Well, the truth is, if they want to be a biologist, they just should pursue it. It's so simple. And just enjoy the path as they get there. Uh, Essentially, if you're not enjoying it as you get there, then maybe that's not the path for you. And I know that sounds a little cheesy and it's not be all you can be sort of thing, but that's really what it is. And it's really no secret. And You don't need very much wisdom for this. So. Do you?
0: No. Um, Would you recommend, if it's a younger student, do you recommend that they take any kinds of classes, for example, that help them be prepared?
1: Oh, surely. There is no way in any discipline nowadays, not not just in biology, there is no way to be successful and compete and, and get your kicks from it, but to work hard and achieve a level of proficiency because the field is very competitive. And you need to be successful to be happy at it. There is no question. You need to make progress and you need to be competitive. And that takes hard work. The only good side about it, of course, is that that preparation is fun in itself. And that was my point. If that hard work is not fun at the same time, then maybe it's not the hard work you need and you need some other hard work. I I don't think there is escaping from the hard work. But if that particular one is, you know, the one that's, alleviated by the pleasure you get out of it, that's probably means you found your path and you just should continue on.
0: Right, kind of the fact that if you do things that you enjoy, then it really isn't work, whether it's hard or not. Mm -hmm. You still enjoy it. Farhan, I want to thank you for joining us here today.
1: Yes, thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, now that we've had a chance to explore a cup of soil, I hope you'll understand why we didn't say it's a cup of dirt at least according to our guest scientist, Ferran Garcia-Pichel. The Ask a Biologist program is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. And even though we don't broadcast live, you can still send us your question using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.